Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is December 28th, 2023 and on today's episode of the show we're going to be talking about the 1993 action thriller The Fugitive. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And editor and chief film critic Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right, guys, let's get into it. Uh, This year marks the 30th anniversary of The Fugitive, and this movie is now available on 4K for the first time. We are banking this conversation for the week after the holidays, so hopefully nothing (laughs) too terrible happens to the the cast or crew of this movie in between the point where we're recording this and when people will listen to it. But uh, I gathered both of you because I know that you are both big fans of this movie, and I thought it would just be a cool opportunity to present uh, an interview that I did with Andrew Davis, the director of this film, but also just give us some room to talk about The Fugitive and why it's so great. So uh, let's just go around the circle a little bit and talk about this movie. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. What do you, what do you make of The Fugitive these days? Man, I man, do I love The Fugitive. I, I it's, it's definitely like one of my all-time favorite movies. It's just relentlessly entertaining. It's endlessly rewatchable. I rewatch this every year. I actually rewatched it twice this year because I watched it once it was on HBO Max, or I guess it's just called Max Dow. I watched it on there, and then the, the 4K came out, so I rewatched it. And I never get sick of this movie. There's just something about the DNA of this movie that it never gets boring to me. No matter how many times I see it, I can always rewatch it and uh, just stick with it from beginning to end. They're just, uh, you know, it, it sounds hyperbolic or whatever, but they don't they don't make movies like this anymore. They really don't make these sort of like mid budget thrillers aimed strictly at adults with, with stars in them like if, if someone was trying to make this now it would be like straight to netflix and it, no everyone would forget about it and uh, i you know it's it's actually insane to me this is 30 years old because it's just another reminder of how old i am and my mortality because <laughs> i remember i remember seeing this in the theater with my parents when it came out like me and my my, my parents took me to see this when it came out and you know, I remember being a kid and seeing it in theaters and then watching it on VHS. And now it's it's somehow 30 years old, which is <laughs> just terrifying, terrifying. The march of time. <laughs> Jacob, what about you? Yeah, this movie's great. And it has this vibe to it that this is going to sound really insulting, but I don't mean it this way. It has the uh, TBS vibe. And I, I mean that in that if it's on TBS and I was if you're channel surfing, if you're still the person who has cable, if I see Fugitive, I, I find myself locked into it. Uh, there are a handful of movies like this where maybe... Maybe the thing about them feels skippable if you're looking at them on your shelf. Like, oh, I've seen a Fugitive a thousand times. I don't need to put it on. Or um, in theaters, it's like, oh, that's just a you know a fairly straightforward action movie. Do I need to go see it in theaters? Not necessarily. That's the vibe you get from the outside. But once you get like two minutes of it on TV flashing in front of you, like, oh, no. Now I'm going to watch the whole thing with commercials. And, th- I, and I know Chris said already, but they don't make movies like this anymore because the, the, the interest in high concept and superhero movies and... You know, things with giant hooks and giant stakes. Uh, I understand why those are popular, and I like a lot of those. Uh, but something about the more human, you know, drawn down, attention to detail, uh, character-driven, you know, thriller elements of The Fugitive feel really old-fashioned in, in, in a way that, you know, I, I definitely miss. In, in a way where if I'm flipping through channels and Iron Man's on, I'll go, yeah, I've seen Iron Man, I'll maybe, and, I'll, and I'll keep skipping, but... If I see a fugitive on Ben, I will watch the fugitive no matter what. It's, it's it, it really is a problem. I, I've seen this movie. I've seen chunks of this movie out of order more times than I can count because if it's ever on, I will watch it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a good point there in that, like, this is a, a piece of intellectual property. This is what IP used to look like in the mid 90s, the early to mid 90s or whatever. And like, obviously, we're drowning in that kind of mentality now in Hollywood. But The Fugitive was based on a really super popular TV show from whatever it was, 20 plus years before this movie came out. And it's just like, to me, it just seems like I wish that... um it kind of seems like the peak of what adaptation can be, you know, like uh, a movie for adults. Like it, ju- it just really feels like a movie for adults in a time where we're kind of starving for those. So it always, to me, feels just really, really good to go back and rewatch this. Um, I want to talk about Harrison Ford for a second. I'm curious where this ranks for you guys as a Harrison Ford movie, because he is this like sort of totemic figure in pop culture who like dominates so much of what we think of from i guess like late 70s filmmaking especially has a huge part of of like the uh pop culture zeitgeist in the 80s but like he's been a consistent force in hollywood for a long time but what do you guys think of in terms of like when you think of the fugitive do you think of this as a harrison ford movie or do you think of it as like um you know a a a broader genre exercise like chris where do you fall there you know, outside of Indiana Jones, this is probably like my favorite Harrison Ford performance, honestly. It's such a I, – I feel like Harrison Ford doesn't get enough credit for being a great actor. Like he's a movie star and I think people think of him as a movie star, but uh, he's a, a legitimately great actor. And he's got this sort of everyman quality to him, especially in this movie where he's playing this sort of, you know, everyman thrust into this – uh, unthinkable situation that he has to claw his way out of. And it's a very grounded performance. It's very, it's a, it's a subtle performance. Like he doesn't like, I know there's like uh, sort of like a joking thing about how Harrison Ford points his finger and yells a lot in movies. And he, he does like, there are roles where he does that. And he does that in this too. He does point at, at the end where he's like, you switch the samples. And he's pointing the finger at, at the guy. <laughs> but, uh, it's a other than it's a very low key sort of performance and it works incredibly well the way he sort of like internalizes the, the characters uh you know he's he spends the majority of the movie like alone it's like him act you know you know it's a two-hander movie in that it's him and Tommy Lee Jones but the majority of the movie is Harrison Ford on his own doing his own thing and uh, that's not easy to to play off of no one and and sort of carry an entire film like that and he does it he makes it seem like almost effortless the way he does it here. It's very, it's a very collected, very, uh, I said grounded already, but it's a very grounded performance. And mm-hmm. uh, it really is one of my favorite Harrison. Like when I think of Harrison Ford, I think of Indiana Jones and I think of the fugitive. Like those are the two things that immediately come to mind. Jacob, what about you? There are two Harrison Fords. There's Harrison Ford, the pop culture icon, which is Indiana Jones and Han Solo. And there's Harrison Ford, the 90s mid-budget action superstar. And I kind of have to compartmentalize them. I think they're two very different actors. There's an, there's a swagger uh, to Han Solo and to Indiana Jones. You know, that, that heightened sense of playing a character that is evident in those, in, in, in those movies. Uh, but look at Harrison Ford's 90s films, like his Jack Ryan film was The Fugitive. Uh, these movies that you know weren't ever as big as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, but were still big hits and were still built around his star power, around what he could do. And they're, it's a very different kind of acting, as Chris said. I don't think Harrison Ford has the has the widest range, but what he 
the three or four things he's really good at, he's exceptionally good at. And mm-hmm. kind, of, kind, of, kind of a Cary Grant quality, where Cary Grant you know, couldn't do any, couldn't do everything, but what he was good at was so good, why would you want him to? And I really like these 90s Harrison Ford movies, these 90s thrillers, because Harrison Ford, he's an inherent tough guy. He's, he, he, could, he could take you in a fight. But he's also not going to win every fight. He's going to get knocked down. He reminds you of your dad or your uncle or your or your kind of gruff neighbor who you like. And you kind of wonder, like, oh, well, what happened to that guy if he uh, if, if he had to go on the run? And Harrison Ford is a incredibly attractive, physically fit man. So I don't want to say there's an everyman quality to him, but there is somehow. Harrison Ford may be one of the great Hollywood everyman action heroes. I mean. You couldn't put Tom Hanks in the Fugitive. It wouldn't work. But Harrison Ford has a physicality, but also sort of that blue-collar veneer that is missing from so many actors that makes you think, oh, yeah, this guy's real. This this mm-hmm. guy lived two doors down from me. He's on, the, he's on the run. It's a very special kind of movie star aura that is very unique to Harrison Ford, I think. Yeah, and there's there's an intelligence there, too. Not to say that like Tom Hanks is not an intelligent actor or an, an actor who projects intelligence, but I think it's that combination of that physicality with the intelligence. Like he's playing a doctor in this movie and you you believe it. You know, there are some um, actors where, you know, Mark Wahlberg, for example, like I think that The Happening is the, the famous example where like he's playing a teacher and everybody just kind of like rejects the premise of that movie to a degree because uh, it's just kind of like fundamentally... Um, flawed as a concept like mark Wahlberg just does not read as like an intelligent man on screen i apologize to all the mark Wahlberg fans out there but um you know there, there's something about ford where you really buy it there and i'm glad you mentioned his 90s because i wrote down all of his films that came out in the 90s i want to blow through those real quick so presumed innocent regarding henry patriot games the fugitive clear and present danger sabrina the devil's uh, the devil's own air force one six days seven nights and random hearts Man, that's and I such think a he, cool run. That's like, not all those movies are great, but that's such a fascinating run that he had right there. It is, and I think a, a very strong case could be made that The Fugitive is the best of of all of these movies. Like I, I know, so, yeah. you know, Air Force One like has its. I I love Air Force One, um, but I think like as a as a um, a whole package kind of movie, I think The Fugitive is probably the best there. Jacob, do do you agree, or do you um, like hold those Tom Clancy movies like in in higher esteem than than this even? Well, I mean, the Clancy movies are, are very good. I mean, Harrison Ford carved out a 90s niche of making very good movies. But The Fugitive is a step above them all. It, it, it is by far, removing Indian Jones and Han Solo, it is, I think, to borrow what you and Chris have already said, the definitive Harrison Ford movie. It, it is, they're using all parts of the Ford effectively here. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, okay, so Tommy Lee Jones is the other um, factor in this equation, the, the other variable here. And he won Best Supporting Actor in this movie over a pretty impressive grouping of people. I don't know when the last time you guys looked at the the list of nominees from, I think it was the, it was the 1994 Oscars was, but like he beat... Leonardo DiCaprio and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, uh, Ray Fiennes and Schindler's List, John Malkovich in In the Line of Fire, and Pete Postlewaite in In the Name of the Father. Um, and like this kind of thing is not the type of performance and not the type of movie really that that gets Oscar attention anymore. But it did in 1993-4, and it's kind of like an, an amazing thing. Um, do you guys think of this as like an Oscar performance? I mean, it doesn't read like that when you're when you're in the moment and watching it. But like, has the um, the sort of like novelty of the fact that Tommy Lee Jones won an Oscar for this movie, uh, like superseded the, the work that he's actually doing on screen in your mind when you watch this. Um, Jacob, what do you think? 
it's an interesting question because it is such a famous performance now. Uh, but the, the thing it reminds me of, if you want to compare Oscar performances, it reminds me of uh, Brad Pitt winning for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a movie where he doesn't have like a big, you know, breakdown scene. There's not like a big Oscar-y moment in that movie. You're kind of hard-pressed to find, you know, the, the Oscar clip that you can play where, that's, where that makes everybody go, ooh, that's why he was nominated. It's a, it's a performance that is so effective within the movie itself and within the texture of the film itself, it is not a performance that stands out in the sense of, ooh, look at me. It's a film that, it's a performance that serves the film and serves the film's interests so quietly that it, it is absolutely the kind of performance that does not win Oscars. It's the kind of performance mm-hmm. that gets overlooked all the time. So the fact that it's Tommy Lee Jones' Oscar movie is very funny because Tommy Lee Jones absolutely has performances where he's doing you know big grand speeches and teary-eyed things he he has those performances and yet he won for the performance where he is serving the narrative and serving the needs of the movie over the needs of a flashy moment so effectively and that's the kind of acting that you know doesn't get oscars so it's actually really fun and uh, that this is his oscar movie yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so many like little tossed off moments like his I mean, we're talking about Ford's physicality. He has a physicality too, where like, he'll like walk into a room and like sit down and kind of just be like, what you think is aimlessly looking around. And maybe he'll like do a little bit of business where he'll like play with something on a desk or whatever. But like, you can see the wheels turning behind his eyes um, in a really, really effective way. Chris, what do you think about Tommy Lee Jones in this movie? It's such a fun performance and it's it's a tricky character because it would have been very easy to make this character sort of the antagonist because you know he's chasing our hero but we really like Tommy Lee Jones makes him really likable like he's a likable guy like even though we were rooting for Harrison Ford and we want Harrison Ford to get away and you know clear his name we're also sort of rooting for Tommy Lee Jones's character because he's he's so uh, he's like char. It's a charming performance, and Tommy Lee Jones is sort of like building this character from the ground up because, on paper, he's just you know he's the dogged lawman, but he makes it into like he makes it into this like quirky sort of likable, charming guy that you can't help but you know root for, and uh, you know that that's not easy. And Tommy Lee Jones does such a good job with that. Tommy Lee Jones works really well with Andrew Davis. He also is in um. Under Siege, which I think is like the best Steven Seagal movie. It's like, mm-hmm. this happens to be a Steven Seagal movie that Andrew Davis directed. And that's such a different performance in that, where Tommy Lee Jones is going really, he's like really, he's the villain in that, and he's really big, and he's really over the top, and he's really broad. And this, even though he's sort of big in this, it's a it's a little more subtle work that he's doing here. And uh, I just I just love it. You know, I I... It's it's so weird that he won an Oscar for this. Like I I knew I knew he won an Oscar for this, and it's so weird when you put him head to head with Ray Fiennes because Ray Fiennes' performance in Schindler's List is so good, and that feels like the performance that should have won. Mm-hmm. Like oh that's that's a shoe in to win, and the fact that Tommy Lee Jones beat him is like so fascinating to me that like I don't think that would like ever happen again. Like the, the, like because you know Schindler's List, great movie, wonderful movie. Ray Fiennes phenomenal in that movie, and the 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 idea that that. Schindler's List, this big, important film lost to this like pop art movie is so cool to me. Like, yeah. I can't, like, I, like, yeah, I, I just love that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think part of the reason that Tommy Lee Jones works so well is because he has such a great supporting roster of like this ensemble of, of uh, character actors around him. You know, L. Scott, uh, L. Caldwell Scott, I think her name is, and um, 
God, what what is the oh Joey Pants? Of course. Oh, he's so that that the, the whole supporting cast of all the U.S. Marshals are so good, and they're so. There's just these little moments that are in this movie that I like. There's a moment like after the the famous, um, you know, the dam scene where Harrison Ford jumps off the dam, where it shows all the marshals like running around and they can't find their way out of the dam. And I love that because it's such a funny, like, I feel like if you made this movie now, they would cut that scene because it doesn't <laughs> add anything to the plot. But it's just like a great character moment where like they're running and they can't find their way out. And they're like, how the hell do we get out of here? And they're like running up and down stairs. And it's just such a great little beat and i just you know i love andrew davis movies andrew davis is like a great workman director and he does he loves chicago he does a great job filming chicago this is a great chicago movie and Mm -hmm. so just those little touches that make this movie stand out above like your standard by the numbers thriller and like they've you know they made this into like a quibby series i think they made a fugitive quibby series and i never watched it but i just imagine it's awful (laughs) <laughs> it's like like i just imagine it's like really terrible and you can't like top it you know so, so like i don't know they're just these quirky little moments and like all these characters in the movie that serve the film and and go out of their way to make it uh just a special movie and yeah. every, like, everything here is wor- every i don't think there's a single thing in this movie that doesn't work and i don't say that lightly because no movie i i i dare say this is like a perfect movie for what it's trying to do like I, I find no flaws in this movie. And that's, I say that humbly and without hyperbole. I, I genuinely think this is like the perfect movie. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we have an article up on Slash Film called The Fugitive Was the Rare Action Movie to Get Nominated for Best Picture and It Deserved It. And there's some great points in there. Um, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So I encourage people to uh, check that out. But I just wanted to point out that like Jurassic Park came out the same year and Jurassic Park was not nominated for Best Picture, but The Fugitive was. And also it's interesting that Harrison Ford was supposed to play Alan Grant. I think Spielberg said that he offered the role of Alan Grant, Alan Grant in Jurassic Park to, to uh, Ford first, but he turned it down. So like, if that would have happened, we wouldn't have gotten the fugitive. So just like a fascinating sort of, uh, you know, what if sliding doors kind of moment there. Um, all right, let's take a break real quick and then we'll come back and I have a, a question for you guys about the fugitive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So my question is, do you think of The Fugitive as an action movie? It's so kind of strange to think about this as an action film, given, you know, the the John Wick world that we live in now. Jacob, what do you think? It's an action film. I mean, there are various degrees of action. I mean, this was released in the same era that, you know, Steven Seagal was snapping necks and under siege. So it's not like action has changed so much in terms of, you know, body count versus non-body count. It's, It's a matter of degrees. Like it's, you know, a horror film that's heavy on tension atmosphere versus, you know, a Friday 13th slasher film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the action genre deserves to be treated as widely as horror is in terms of capable of doing so many different things. And I think that some people may, may call this a thriller more than an action movie, which, you know, I, fair. 
but to me thriller is more of a uh basic instinct uh you know fatal attraction style thing um as opposed to a man on the run movie i think, I think once somebody's on the run you're in you're, you're in an action movie i don't think you need a body count to be in, to have an action film so yeah that's where i stand action film interesting okay i would probably come down closer to the thriller side but for the same reason like i would think that a man on the run kind of thing would be a thriller and there's not like a ton of um you know hand-to-hand fights like fist fights or whatever i kind of like um, imagine or, or equate action movies to like explosions and uh and like brawls to, to some degree but there are like big set pieces in this movie um but i don't know for me it just seems more like a thriller than an action movie chris where do you come down on that i i would split the difference and say it's an action thriller let's go with that like, <laughs> okay it's, it's like it straddles the line it definitely has action in it like that train sequence is an action sequence and uh you know there's so many chases in the movie so yeah but it it is I think it leans a little bit more towards the thriller territory. Okay. So I wanted to just bring up a couple of things that I'm not sure if you guys uh, were aware of there. The original script of this movie, there was a twist where Gerard um, Tommy Lee Jones's character originally, it, he was revealed to be the villain of the movie. He had hired the one armed man to kill Dr. Richard Kimball Ford's character after Kimball screwed up an operation on Gerard's wife. Um, I'm so glad that they ended up not going with that because that seems like a, um, I don't know, like a, uh, I guess a disaster, a absolutely disastrous decision. Hundred <laughs> percent. But I was just going to say apologies to uh, to the Star Wars fans out there. But like, it seems like a Rise of Skywalker thing where it's like it it brings the it makes the whole world of the movie feel way smaller, um, like for no real reason, no justifiable reason. So I'm so glad they they avoided that. They also avoided a potential disaster in terms of a romantic subplot that existed between Ford's character and Julianne Moore's character. And they evidently somebody, thankfully, took a step back and said, hey, isn't this guy supposed to be in mourning for his dead wife who was like murdered in the beginning of this movie? So thankfully, they cut that part out. But, uh, you know, just in case people didn't know some of the behind the scenes stuff about The Fugitive, it's kind of fascinating to think about what this movie started as and then what it, you know, eventually evolved into. So um, I was curious from you guys, like, you know, are there any lessons that modern Hollywood can take from this movie or because it came out in 1993 when the blockbuster landscape and, and the cinematic landscape as a whole was so different. Are there any parallels that or any lessons that could be taken essentially rendered meaningless just because of the time difference and like the, the fact that these eras are so different now? I don't, I don't think so, Ben. I, I think that maybe a few years ago, I would have been cynical about this saying, yeah, we're a different era. People want this now. They don't want that. Uh, but the past year has been very interesting watching the very sudden shift in audience tastes as certain films have bombed and other films have way overperformed. It's a very different film. It, it actually is a thriller as opposed to an action movie. But Oppenheimer doing becoming a near billion dollar movie is me evidence that a fugitive like hit is possible, especially since we're over, you know, the superhero bump seems to be over. Uh, superhero movies aren't going anywhere, but the days of them being slam dunk surefire things certainly is. I think audience tastes are changing. And I think that audiences are going to, you know, be drifting toward something fresh and new. And somehow in 2023, the fugitive feels fresh and new despite being 30 years old. I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately, but I am saying that if I was running a studio right now, I'd be looking at, Hey, why did a three hour long thriller about, um, men in suits standing around do well could we do a movie where glenn powell is on the run and make extremely good and make hundred million dollars i think the answer is yes but mm-hmm. that's just me sitting here from the comfort of my chair not actually <laughs> actually running a studio i'm not, you know, don't don't blame me people 
Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts about potential lessons that could be learned? Just make movies for adults. Like, it's so much of modern cinema, my, I mean modern in the last, like, 10 years, is, like, juvenile, for lack of a better word. It, it's aimed at, like, teenagers. And, like, uh, anytime, like, I can't remember the, like, Oppenheimer is a movie aimed at adults, and it made a billion dollars. And it's, like there's a there's a market out there people want to see that people don't want to see you know madam web i'm sorry but i refuse to believe anyone is interested in madam web so stop making movies like that and make something you know aimed at adults again you know i'm not saying there isn't room for stuff aimed at younger audiences there is of course but uh, we need variety again like you need movies that are are like this to stand out in in, in the sea of everything else and mm-hmm. uh you know give us something like that again and and put it in theaters and make it you know g- don't drop it onto netflix where it's going to be forgotten in, in, a, in a week like you know you can make a cultural event like, we keep going back to Oppenheimer because Oppenheimer is a really great recent example like that became like a, a touchstone event like that became you know, they kept that in theaters as long as possible and it made a fortune and people were talking about it. People are still talking about it. And now like the Blu-ray is selling out. Like you can still make movies for adults that will will drive up uh, business like that. You just need to make them really well, I guess. is the, Make good movies. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> they should make good movies again. Uh, well, I'm not sure if this is necessarily the best uh, transition from that, but U.S. Marshals, the sequel to The Fugitive, um, I think is, is probably widely agreed upon to not be nearly as good as The Fugitive. But I'm, I'm curious if it holds a, uh, you know, a, a soft spot in any of your hearts. This movie came out five years later and a different director. Tommy Lee Jones came back to reprise his role. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is in it. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about U.S. Marshals or is this, because to me, that one was also another, like kind of a TBS movie in terms of like, it was on all the time. It, do, it does not have the same level of rewatchability, I think, uh, as The Fugitive, but um, it was definitely like on for a long time and sort of like carved out. It, it had the... Um, the the higher ground to a degree it had like the the positioning to be thought of in in those sort of uh glowing nostalgic terms and i'm curious if it actually holds that place uh for either of you it's not very good i've only seen it once way back in the day on vhs or a different blockbuster to give you an idea of how long ago this was so maybe if i visit it now a different opinion but i remember just being it, it, it felt so generic. I mean, the thing about fugitive is that it's you sum up in one sentence but the details and the nuances uh really make it feel like something so much richer and bigger than than you would imagine. Whereas U.S. Marshals is literally the description of the back of the VHS box and nothing more. Mm-hmm. Chris, do you have any uh, fond memories of that movie? Yeah, you know, it's not good. It's not terrible. It's got its moments. Robert Downey Jr., it's like a fun pre-modern Robert Downey Jr. performance where like you can see like, oh, he's a really great actor just waiting for the right role to come along and, and make him, you know, what he is today. Uh it's okay. It's not like great. It, it, it doesn't have that Andrew Davis touch. It needs that Andrew Davis touch to it. And, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is, is fun, I guess. And it's fun to be back with those characters, but it just does not have the same 
like vibrancy as the fugitive. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Andrew Davis. I think now is a good time to go to my interview with him. Um, and Chris, you mentioned like, you know, this is a great Chicago movie. Uh, I just wanted to take a second to recommend that people check out a movie called The Package that Andrew Davis directed. I talked about it on the podcast before, but it's another Chicago set thriller starring Tommy Lee Jones and Gene Hackman is the lead in that one. And I would highly recommend that if you, you know, or somebody who's listening to this and really enjoy watching The Fugitive, because uh, I'd never heard of The Package until you know, a year ago or something and watch that and really enjoyed it. So um, check that out. All right. Well, let's go to my conversation now. It's a very short one, but uh, I took any opportunity I could get to talk to him about this movie. Uh, and here is Andrew Davis. Hello, Mr. Davis. How are you? Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. So Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford both have reputations as no-nonsense guys, but I'm curious about their acting styles. A significant percentage of a director's job is to manage personalities. So I'm wondering if they had similar needs as actors or if you had to navigate different methods of working in order to get those performances from them. You know, I didn't have to work hard to get performances from these guys. I mean, the story was clear what the issues were. And, uh, you know, I, this is the third film I had done with Tommy. And so, you know, we had a, a relationship where I would just try to create a, a realistic environment and surround him with, with interesting characters he could play off of, you know. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever say, say it slower or, or, or have a different tone to your voice. You know, if something didn't work, you know, he, you know, it was pretty clear uh, we would do another take, but we didn't shoot a lot like that, you know. And Harrison, basically, through most of the movie, is pretty much a silent actor. He's reacting to things. And so it's his body language that's showing this danger. And, and, and I've said this before, you know, we, we're out on the ed edge of the dam, you know, and he's, he's going like this. And Tommy's saying, you know, he's the greatest silent actor we have. That's great. Um, I've heard you say before that initially Ford was a little reticent about Tommy because he thought that he would be too powerful and take over the movie. And I was curious if you remember having to talk him down from that ledge at all or if he just came around naturally. Well, he, he hired me based upon seeing Under Siege. And Tommy's pretty great in Under Siege. He's in the movie more than Seagal, another Warner picture. And uh, so we tested a few other actors, and it was clear they weren't going to be able to stand up to what Tommy could do. And finally, Harrison said, all right, go ahead. I'll take on the challenge. And we're going to, and he invited me to, to, to his place in uh, Wyoming. And, and, uh, and he, I got off the plane and says, we're going to Chicago, because I wanted to go to Chicago. I'm from Chicago. So I got Tommy and I got Chicago. I knew I was going to be in Fat City. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, this, I think The Fugitive is like one of the most rewatchable movies of the entire 1990s. And I know that you've probably seen it a lot over the past year doing press for this anniversary and overseeing the new restoration for the 4K release. I was wondering if you've noticed a small moment in the movie on these recent rewatches that you might have been doing that sticks out to you now for any reason, some small moment. Well, you know, the whole process of remastering and looking at it frame by frame and adjusting the color and, and the texture of every shot and the remixing of it and hearing the, the great score by James Newton Howard and the effects that were created, they were not, was nominated for Academy Awards and music and sound and all kinds of stuff. I just was very flattered and lucky that I had such a great team working with me and for me. And so, uh, you know, I... I just, I, you know, I, there's, there, it's funny because I remember when we were in, in Venice showing the movie, there's a scene where 
where Harrison gets picked up on the road by a woman, right? And Jason right and uh, Ivan Reitman was sitting behind us, and he tapped he tapped Harrison. I said, "Oh, there was a scene that got cut, and there was a, there was a scene in the cafe where he met this woman. It wasn't just some woman picking up." So that's the only sort of like, why would a woman pick up this guy walking down the street? You know, but people don't blink at it. You know, he's yeah, a nice woman, <laughs> good looking guy, I'll give him a ride. You know, that's the only thing that's sort of a little twisty. I think I have time for one more question with you. And that is that um, I know that this script was very much in flux and scenes were being written on the day. And I was just curious if you typically like to work that way as a director. Well, you always want to work with the greatest script in the world that doesn't need anything done to it. But you also want to take advantage of the talent of the actors who have something to bring to it that the writer didn't think about. You know, a lot of actors have worked with great other writers and directors and, you know, and Joey Pants, people like that, Tommy, you bring something to the set. So, you know, I, I would rather have a perfect script, um, but at the same time, if, you know, it's like Kubrick says, you can plan and plan and plan, but if it's not working, you got to fix it. So, but anyway, yeah. the Blu-ray looks fantastic and it sounds fantastic. It looks better than, than you would ever could see it in the, in the theater. So I, I recommend people go get it. Definitely. Well, congrats on the movie. I mean, it's one of my favorites. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for today's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, you can find more about The Fugitive at SlashFilm.com. I will link to a couple things in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.